there's no doubt, I think, that the most controversial, the single most scandalous and scandalizing piece of modern art is a photograph from 1987 by an artist named Andres Serrano. Seems simple enough. It's a photograph of a little plastic crucifix, the sort of thing that you might get from a stall. When you first look at the photograph, it's a bit hazy. The crucifix seems to be surrounded almost by an orange cloud. It's a bit hazy. Yet there's also something kind of beautiful about it. In the midst of this orange haze, the little plastic white crucifix almost acquires a sort of yellow tinge to it. It almost seems to glow in the middle of this haze. When you look a little bit closer at the photograph, you notice that there are tiny air bubbles visible on the plastic crucifix. And then you notice that there are also air bubbles a little bit closer around the edges. It appears very, very soon as if this little white crucifix is submerged in some kind of liquid. And then when you read the artist's note about this photograph, you discover that this is a cheap $3 plastic white crucifix suspended in a cheap glass jar that's been filled over the course of days with the artist's urine and blood. It's not really any surprise that people should have found that so scandalous. After all, the artist is there quite literally urinating over something that Christians find most precious most dear of all. It's no wonder that it was scandalous. It's no wonder that so many people have found it so offensive. That, after all, was the artist's point. He wanted it to be offensive because he wanted to desecrate that which other people find precious. Yet there's something crazy going on here. Despite his vicious intentions, and they were vicious, and despite the cruelty of the man, and he is a particularly despicable and unlikable figure, Andre Serrano has captured something with this horrible photo that so many works of overtly Christian art with their sanitized, clean, beautiful crucifixes seem to have entirely missed. Namely, this artist captures just what it is the crucifixion was meant to signify. Crucifixion was a form of punishment that was reserved by Romans for certain types of criminals. If you think about it, if your overlords really don't care about you very much, Why on earth would they go to too much trouble to engage in a form of punishment that causes so much trouble? I mean, it was labor-intensive. It took a long period of time. It was messy. It's a form of punishment that's reserved for certain 
types of criminals, namely types of criminals that the Romans most want to deter. After all, it's a form of punishment that is a form of deterrence. And what sort of people, what sort of criminals does an occupying army like the Romans want to deter? They want to deter rebels, assassins, insurrectionists. So it's no wonder that we are told in our reading, chapter 27, verse 38, there were two rebels crucified with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. Remember, the cross that Jesus is hanging on was a cross that had been set aside for another rebel. This is what crucifixion is there for. And we are reminded no less than twice that Jesus is here nailed to Barabbas's cross. Crucifixion wasn't just death. It was public death. It was a particular kind of death. It was a death that was meant to be seen by others. It was a death that was meant to be seen by others as a way of dissuading them from engaging in the same behavior that got that person on that cross in the first place. That's why the charge that this person is guilty of was put either above their head or hanging around their neck. To crucify someone, to put the charge on them, is then to say, anyone else want to try? This is what happens to the people who do this. This is what happens to kings of the Jews. This is what happens to messiahs. In other words, crucifixion was another way of saying there is no king but Caesar. The purpose of crucifixion was to demonstrate, was to communicate, was to proclaim Roman power. This is what happens when people defy Caesar. But it's also worth saying that torture was only part of the process. In fact, crucifixion wasn't even really about the torture. There were other ways, after all. We know this from history. There were other ways of engaging in rather agonizing ways of putting your victims to death. Uh, crucifixion was an evolved form of punishment. One of the earlier forms that it evolved from was impalement. I mean, imagine what you can do when you don't have a crossbeam, right? The purpose of crucifixion wasn't simply to exact pain or even to exact the worst death possible. The purpose of crucifixion was to make the victim hang, exposed publicly to die over a long, long time. Because before the victims of crucifixion are allowed to die physically, they must die socially. They must die politically. In other words, before they're allowed to die, they must be completely humiliated. Something we often hear less about when we think about Good Friday is that the victims of crucifixion were invariably made to hang naked. And yet Matthew's gospel tells us this explicitly, doesn't it? Even though we like to ignore it. 
Jesus was stripped, we are told. His clothes were divided among the Roman guards. The purpose of hanging the victims naked wasn't simply to exacerbate the heat during the day or the cold during the night. We also need to remember that in certain ancient cultures, for a naked man to be seen by women and children was an act of supreme dishonor and disgrace. We got a glimpse of this in the story of Noah, where Noah gets a bit tipsy, falls over in his tent, and exposes himself. His sons come into the tent, and they giggle, and it causes great shame for Noah and great punishment for them. To hang someone for days, oftentimes days, naked, was to increase, was to ramp up the humiliation. It's not enough for this person to die. This person must be utterly humiliated first. If we put that together with the idea that crucifixion was meant to communicate Roman power, this is what happens when you defy Roman might. Then you can see very quickly, can't you, that the whole point of crucifixion was to make whatever man hung on that cross less than a man. Less than human to make them objects of utter contempt. And then there's the location of crucifixions. They didn't take place in market squares or just outside the courtroom, the same way that guillotines later would or that hangings sometimes did. No, crucifixions, this reflects partly the fact that crucifixions were something that were designed specifically with Jews in mind. Crucifixions took place outside the city walls in places where animal and human waste was dumped, in places reserved for rubbish, for things that rot. Remember the name of the place where Jesus is crucified. It's a hill called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, suggesting Maybe this was a place where Romans would simply dump bodies, not allowing them to be buried, exposing the corpses to the elements. This is a place of particular filth, degradation, and uncleanness. You see the point. The purpose of crucifixion wasn't just to cause pain. It was to humiliate, to die upon the hill, hanging naked on a cross, is to die as a piece, no longer as a human, but as a piece of human waste. In an ancient world, where so much of religious observance was bound up with purity, with cleanness, with washing rituals, you can understand, can't you, that to not just die, but to die as a piece of filth, to die as someone who is defiled, is a fate worse than death. Two centuries before Jesus an occupying Syrian army used to force large amounts of raw 
pig into the mouths of their Jewish victims before roasting them over a fire. This is combining the two, you see. Death, defilement, humiliation, desecration. Jesus in the garden, having relinquished his will, having entrusted his life to his loving Father, having been passed from one hand to another, having endured an ordeal of manipulation and humiliation and utter indifference, of unrelenting callousness. Jesus has undergone an ordeal that was designed to turn him into something disgusting, into something subhuman. Unlike Pilate, full of power, unlike Barabbas and Peter, both full of ambition, Jesus, having relinquished his will to his father, having stood silent before his accusers, having stood motionless before his judge, Jesus now here hangs powerless, desecrated, less than a man, a crucified Messiah. You have to recognize, of course, just what a strange thing it is to say, crucified Messiah. It's like saying a dark sun. It's like saying a square circle. You discover that someone never was a Messiah by seeing that they're crucified. After all, bound up with being a Messiah is being successful, is seizing the moment, is getting what you want. Jesus, having laid aside his will at the beginning of this ordeal in the garden, now endures everybody else turning their backs upon him. Now those around Jesus, adding to his humiliation, begins mocking his powerlessness. He saved others, they mocked, but he can't say himself. He's the Messiah, let him come down from this cross and we will believe him. He entrusted himself to God, let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For after all, he said, I am the son of God. Isn't this now the same temptation that Peter whispered in Jesus' ear? You don't have to go through with this. You can brandish your own sword. You don't have to lose control of this situation. Abandoned by his followers. Betrayed by his friend renounced by his people, betrayed and treated with contempt by Pilate, and now finally abandoned by God. Remember it says in Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. Jesus here dies utterly alone, forsaken by everyone. How is it that this can be the end point to which Jesus' entire life is directed? 
You can understand now at the beginning how Jesus says, if you can take this away from me, take it away. If I don't have to drink this cup, remove it from me. If I don't have to undergo this, let me off. But not my will. Not my will. Ever since chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been telling his disciples that this is the moment to which his life has been directed. Jesus began explaining to his disciples, we're told, that he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. How is it that this can be what God wanted of his son? What kind of God could possibly look at this Jesus with favor? This Jesus who has been abandoned by everyone, who has been reviled and desecrated. What could of God, what kind of God could now say to this Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's no wonder, is it, that the Jews looked at the cross as scandal, as outrage. It's no wonder that the Romans looked at the cross as nonsense, as lunacy. The question for us is, what kind of God would look at the cross and say, that expresses my love? That expresses my wisdom? That expresses my beauty? That expresses my strength? What kind of God would say, behold, my beloved son, I am pleased with him. For God to be pleased with this Jesus, everything it turns out that we thought we knew about God would have to be wrong.